Welcome to episode 341 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a conversation with our resident cultural critic, writer, musician, J.Q. from his place in the south of France. We discuss human culture, his new digs, cultural appropriation, a great band from Northern Africa called Tina Rewin, John Lennon, Keith Richards, Hunter S. Thompson's view on politicians, Muhammad Ali. We talk about Jimmy Carter, about being paranoid regarding institutions, John Dahlberg Acton, Kafka, Nietzsche, why he doesn't really get too impressed by Greta Thunberg, about Michael Draper and his friend Jenny, and a butterfly, among other things. A great conversation with our resident cultural critic, JQ. We have an essay titled Brother Brian, an excerpt from another essay written by Saul Steinberg titled Portraits and Landscapes, published in the 2010 edition of the Paris Review, and a poem called Frequent Flyer. All of this, of course, as is always the case, is infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 341 of Troubadours and Tours.
Brother Brian, I remember a time when I needed to be at an outpost of good humans and found a neighborhood bar in the city. Many artists and activists carouse there, and they still do. The three owners tended the place and welcomed genuinely all who came through. The day after G.W. Bush won a second term, one of the owners decided to close the place with about a dozen of lost souls inside. And we drank on the house all night long, lamented and played tune after tune on the jukebox, baby. Another time, the same man, when I asked to settle up my tab on a Saturday, after putting in a full shift of talking, listening, drinking, and seeking some solace, said to me, I think tonight we're going to cash in your frequent flyer miles. He knew at that point I had been dealing with the sense of failure and self-pity that comes with getting divorced. Soon after, he invited my children and me to go horseback riding at his friend's family farm because he felt and intellectualized the truth that we could use it. We navigated the Susquehanna River on a pontoon boat that day and witnessed the strength, elegance, and spirit of a bald eagle as it soared across a blue late summer sky, cumulus clouds floating by. And the beauty of those moments and kindness did not beckon a notion in me to think that this gentleman Brian, through his action, painted a poetic people portrait. Why did he? Because he, in his essence, knows together we must with love and soulfulness, live and forever try to do a bit more than just get by. We must be alive.
Is that JQ? This is JQ. Hi, UW. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much once again for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. JQ, regular contributor, writer, musician, and our resident cultural critic coming at us from the south of France and his new digs. He's been living there for, oh boy. Is it a couple of decades, a decade and a half? Yeah, it's about a quarter century. A quarter, quarter century in the south of France, originally from uh, the northeastern part of the United States. And again, new digs, just got some, uh, uh, I guess, a new perspective physically, a new new house, all of that. How's it going? Well, it's uh, it's sort of a revolution, really, because I've gone from being, you know, the the bohemian poet pauper uh, living uh, in a, in what was a rented ruin of a farmhouse. Um, very agreeable. You know, it's the South of France after all, but, uh, but like a crumbling farmhouse on the countryside to this sort of semi palatial abode with a swimming pool and, uh, you know, a separate recording studio and all the rest. So it's, it's, uh, it's a whole, it's a complicated story, but basically, yeah, it's kind of wonderful. So how much of your soul did you have to sell? All of it. All of it. I had to sell the entire thing. There wasn't that much, I have <laughs> to say. But <laughs> No, none at all. All I had to do, all I had to do, my friend, was fall in love, and uh, the rest took care of itself. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So my lesson, yeah, my message to you, kids. <laughs> no, there is no message. It was just, it's just the way things worked out. I'm, I'm happy for you, and uh, I look forward to meeting um, the obviously mentally disturbed, emotionally uh, confused individual that uh, has taken you in. Um, 
and uh, I'm happy for I, you. I'm not, I'm not going to bother denying any of this. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't seem that way, but obviously there has to be a problem because, right? Right. Same right. with me, you know. <laughs> I wonder what's wrong with my wife. You know, there must be something wrong with her to 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 care about me, right? Jeez. But, you know, thank God for them. Yeah, I'm not going to bother correcting you there either. <laughs> no, no. We're fortunate to have found some good people, and I'm happy to see it, my friend. Uh, I want to ask you some, some questions uh, regarding a concert you just saw. You went to a, a show last night. Uh, one of the, the bands that um, a lot of aficionados in the world of music call the true rebel music band on the planet. They've been around since the 70s out of Mali. Uh, formed in Algeria, and uh, the name of the band, I'm not really uh, sure I'm, pronou- I'm pronouncing it right, but Tina Riwin? Tina Riwin. Tina Riwin. Yeah, well, that's how they pronounce it here in France. Uh, they've worked with some American musicians who, who might pronounce it differently, I don't know. Like I know they worked with Josh Klinghoffer, who's the new guitar player for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, and a lot of very famous people are big fans of theirs, you know, Tom York from Radiohead. And a lot of others. Um, they've made a lot of noise, yeah. Uh, but they're known mainly by musicians and real music aficionados and fans. Uh, they're a very interesting group. You know, the the, the leader of the band, uh, basically his father was a rebel. And he, when he was three or four years old, he saw him executed. He grew up in a, a refugee camp in Algeria. For the, the Touareg people who are, you know, the, that northern area of Mali where it meets Algeria and, and Nigeria and, and that whole region, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mess. <laughs> it has been for a long time. Uh, and Gaddafi was recruiting a lot of military people out of there, including the Touareg. So anyway, this guy, and I can't even pronounce his name. His first name is Ibrahim. Uh, you know, he, he saw his father executed. And then as, as a kid he, in these refugee camps, he saw, I guess, through Doctors Without Borders, whoever was passing through, he got to see a movie and there was a cowboy playing guitar in it. And that interested him. So he built his first guitar out of like, I don't know, a plank of wood and, a, and an old like plastic jar and then some fishing wire or something like that. And he ended up meeting other musicians and they and out of the refugee camps and they formed this sort of uh, music collective. It's sort of like the Wu-Tang clan, clan but with guitars. And uh, they started playing around and it became this thing, Tenari Wen. That was the name for it. And eventually they got sort of discovered here in France. You know, I've, I've had their CDs and been listening to them for, it's, it's been 15, maybe 20 years since I heard of them. I was just, I was just uh, at a friend's house and this music was playing and I turned to him and they, I, he had a great record collection. And I said, who is that? You know, it's a different sound. Um, so last night I finally got to see them in concert. It was fantastic. But actually, since I'm the, the resident cultural critic, and if you want to deal with cultural issues, obviously you can talk about them all day. You know, they, they play political music. It, it's it's uh, Culturally, it's a mixed bag. They're very influenced by Western rock, by everybody from Santana to Dire Straits. But they mixed that with... Tuareg folk music and came up with this very original sort of blend because they they, they play what sounds like it's African blues, but they also use strange time signatures. Um, it's it's kind of simple and repetitive, but 
it's very hard. It's it's not easy for Western year because they're often they're not in like that four four pattern that we're so familiar with, you know. And when you say Tuareg, Tuareg, that's a I guess a cultural term, right? That's a that's yeah. A, they were a, the, sort of a nomadic, uh, nomadic and semi nomadic desert people, you know, uh, in that region and in those countries. I think that's what I looked up uh, the the term Tinaran, and it uh, state. I guess the translation is deserts. That's what it means. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Um, so they were, you know, the show was great. They they were fantastic. They they rocked the house. They also had an opening act, and this is where, like, culturally things get interesting, um, because you know one of the, the the complex issues, a term that people throw around a lot, is cultural appropriation, and that's a very interesting term. It is because you know. Chicago pizza and New York pizza are at war, but pizza is supposed to be Italian, but is it? And you see what I mean? Yes. Um, okay. You know, even when you get into the, the the most typical things, when you hear about cultural appropriation, it's like, oh, it's white people stealing black people's music. For some reason in America, as we do with everything, we break it along racial lines, which is kind of dumb because if, if you go into the musicology of it, while there is, you know, the, the definite fact that American roots music, uh, black Americans who, who were the only people that didn't come over with the American dream. They were brought over in slave ships, right? Uh, and suffered the most. And in the land of bounty and freedom and all those cliches, they were the oppressed, the most, you know, spat upon people and the most held down. And they did what all great artists do. They performed this spiritual alchemy where they took that suffering and turned it into this gift for the world, the blues, gospel, R&B, jazz, you know, and eventually, well, what becomes rock and roll. But to make rock and roll, that's when white people really get involved because you need country music in the bag to make rock and roll. That's, Bluegrass, that's what yeah. And you need rockabilly and bluegrass and all these other things. So, and even in the, you know, and that's, that's very true. So there's this notion that, you know, okay, so, uh, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones are, are cultural appropriators. And I got a real clear lesson last night in the the distinctions between what is and what isn't cultural appropriation because it can be hard to tell it's human it's all human culture you know i mean well, exactly but you know there's the term is thrown around too easily let's put it this way uh you know if you're john lennon or keith richards growing up in london and there's still you know bombed out houses from world war ii in the neighborhood you're growing up in and you're and it's uh, post-World War II, it's it's not boom time over there. You know, they grew up kind of tough. And you hear this music coming across the waters from black Americans. The reason that Keith Richards and John Lennon could reproduce what Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters were doing in their own way is because they could really relate to it. And the reason it's not cultural appropriation is because they were super creative and artists in their own right. And Howlin' Wolf could not have ever written A Day in the Life. If you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's where the term cultural appropriation becomes out of place. But last night, as I was watching Tenari Wen, they're a fantastic group. And they were super inspired by Western rock and roll. They listened to the Grateful Dead and Santana and Dire Straits and these other bands that they cite. But you could but they made their own thing, right? They did something that just sounds like them. And it's Northern How, African. It's Northern African. 
Yes, they, they mixed it with their own music. They used it. It was a cultural influence. You're not stealing it if you're a creative artist, if you're creating something and if you're generating something out of your own suffering and your own reality. They had an opening act, however. <laughs> and I won't name the group because I, I don't want to go there, but it, it, not somebody very famous at all. But it was a, a French woman with a guitar player, and she was playing bass and singing. And she played the blues, and she sang in English. Uh, but watching the opening act, I was really disturbed because it was, as an American, listening to this woman, and I've seen this a lot in France, it's very strange. They'll sing the blues over here. They'll play the blues. I had musicians who played with me who joined blues groups because you can get a lot of gigs doing that, and they need to get gigs, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, it's very easy to play the blues if you're a musician, you know, the mechanics of it are not complex. So if you can ba basically play and learn a few riffs, you can play the blues. It's, it's a simple music to play. But to get the feel of it and to play it for real is a whole other ballgame. That's heart and soul. Yes. And what they were doing, there were all the blues cliches in this music. And the woman could really sing. She had a set of pipes. But the lyrics were bad. She insisted on singing in English doing sort of imitation of, you know, blues phrases, but she used them incorrectly. Uh, and yet she's a very talented singer, but the whole thing was just screamingly inauthentic. Were they original tunes or was she doing, you know, classic blues tunes? No, they were her original tunes and like stories from her life. It's just that they were not good. And they, and even the way she spoke between songs, you could see there was... There was, uh, there was a lack of authenticity and original creation. It was lazy. And I think cultural appropriation really is creative laziness is what it is. Um, and when, you, when you're trying to mimic something and you're not giving it an infusion of your own yeah, self. It's an imitation because you would rather be that than be yourself. But when yeah. you're actually creating, you are expressing who you are. And the, the stark difference between watching that and then having Tinari Wen come out on stage, a bunch of you know black guys from refugee camps – in, in uh, southern Algeria who come from Mali, you know, and playing what is basically Western rock and roll translated through African blues and Tuareg folk music into this original concoction. And it was just magical, you know, whereas watching the opening act, I really had the impression that I, you know, it would be like, imagine a bunch of Americans dressing up as mimes and playing accordions and singing like French folk songs, like great ones, like by George Brassens and they're, they're really excellent poets, songwriters, you know, and, and singing with a bad French American accent in French. How would the French react to that? Right, right. They're trying to be, not well. or I'm thinking even like, since you mentioned a female artist that you had a, you know, uh, an American woman who is, looks very, very uh, Western, very American singing Edith Piaf, you know, in a bad, with a bad accent or something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's a sort of tribute, but it's awkward and you can't take it seriously artistically. And it, and, and the, because I never used this word because I, the term I've never liked it, but as I was listening and watching the cultural appropriation as an American, I was like, she's appropriating my culture. <laughs> right? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. And I, I wasn't offended. It was just like, Except that, you know, you're offended by something that's just not good. 
Yeah, and, and you probably are thinking too, like this is not a representation of what the blues is, as I know it as a you know a citizen, as a, a person who's native to the land where this comes from. And the, you're, but you're in a room with people mostly who are looking at this person as someone who is sharing uh, the blues, and you're saying, no, no, this isn't really it. <laughs> Something like that, yeah, and yeah. and you know, and people are applauding. And, and here's the thing: I've seen uh, a few dozen acts like this in France. I've seen a lot of sort of imitation. There's there's a the blues are popular here, and so musicians who are looking for work, they can join a blues band and get into that circuit where you can get work. Right, right? but but it's just and so I've had musicians. I I had a drummer who 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 ended up doing that. He does it all the time, and he he loves the blues and. And you know, I never go to see his shows or anything just because it's it's all these it, – it, it's it's just not good. <laughs> and they can play. These guys can play. And this woman I saw last night, she could really sing. You know, it's not like she had no chops, no technique. But they just don't She's, get it. They don't have that, that uh, element that is necessary, whatever it is. Yeah, and in terms of – yeah, in terms of technique, her range, her pitch, her precision as a singer, she could sing any any member of Tinari Wen. She could sing them under the table in terms of technique. But they went out there and did their thing, and it was real, you know. Yeah. That, uh, so anyway, last night was a big lesson in 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 that subject. You know, I've always been bothered because the notion of cultural appropriation it's so easy to say, but without curiosity about other cultures and mingling cultures, that's where all the wealth of everything is. You know. Um, well put. Well so put. it's a complex issue. Now, I want to shift gears a bit to talk about uh, another uh, cultural iconic mindset and uh, creativity uh, from the United States of America, Hunter S. Thompson. Ah, uh, yes. You know, the, the creator of gonzo journalism, as, as he's often called. Uh, his views on politicians, you know, coming back, starting back in the 70s, uh, all the way, and he's passed now for probably about a decade. How, how and you're, I know, a student of his. Uh, how how accurate is his analysis and his sense of the political ways, the political tendencies, nature of of uh, of of people in this country? And in your view, well, in the sense that he was very cynical, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, obviously, it's prophetic, but. Well, here's the thing about Thompson is that, you know, we always tend to, in his public image, his comic side gets played up because he was an extremely funny writer. He was, you know, Tom Wolfe called him the Mark Twain of our age, and that's pretty accurate. Uh, he's, he's a real titan. He was a, he was a huge influence on English language prose in general. I mean, it's hard to overestimate uh, that. But Thompson's political views are actually very coherent uh, if you look in particular at a lot of his um, personality profiles, uh, whether it's speaking about Jimmy Carter, George McGovern, or celebrities like Jean-Claude Killy, the, the Olympic skier, or Muhammad Ali, who was sort of a hero of his, he's always hitting this one common theme, and it's about how institutions corrupt the people that they favor. So that you watch George McGovern get taken in by the Democratic machine as he becomes the front runner. And get corrupted by it. And, and Thompson watches as he chooses a vice president that is completely against his political principles, but is good, allegedly, to get him elected and ends up backfiring on him. 
when he talks about Jean-Claude Killy, who was just a, you know, a skier, uh, and how he ends up being, you know, out hawking cars and products and, and just being a, a sort of butt boy for the ad agencies and for the corporations, uh, how he got, he was just, you know, this, this handsome skiing kid, uh, who has become this, this, just this corporate drone. Uh, when he writes about Jimmy Carter, who in the beginning is giving a very inspiring speech to, to a, a room full of important people, where he quotes Bob Dylan and says things that Thompson finds himself agreeing with. He didn't know who Carter was at the time. Uh, and then ends up becoming powerful and everything that was valuable about Carter gets corrupted in the process and eaten up by the institutions Thompson was paranoid about institutions. That's why he's probably something of a left libertarian, I guess you'd have to call him. You know, somebody who believed in like really ultimate freedoms, but at the same time supported a welfare state to, to sort of temper the worst excesses of capitalism and to, to preserve the community so that nobody goes hungry. He, he had that humanitarian aspect too. So his view on current politicians whether it's Trump or, or you know, uh, Bernie Sanders or whoever, you know, Sanders, as long as he remains the outsider, I think Thompson would be all for him. And he certainly would be supporting Sanders today. You know, that, that seems beyond the shadow of a doubt. But what happens if Sanders were actually, if the Democratic power machine would let him through and stop sticking, you know, uh, sticks in his spokes all the time, which is basically what's happening you know, and using their media influence against him. Uh, if he made it, well, then the institutions in Thompson's view would eat him up because they are more powerful than any, any individual. And it's sort of going back to Lord Acton, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, which Thompson liked to quote as well. The Prince. Right? Uh, actually, I think it was a British Lord who said it, but maybe you're right. You're thinking it's Machiavelli who said that originally? I, I thought so, but, you know, I could be wrong. So could I. That happens all the time. But anyway, yeah. No, I think Thompson is, was prescient because there, there's a very coherent political philosophy in that, that runs through Thompson's writing. And it's uh, a sort of anti-institutionalism and anti-bureaucracy. He, he, he's, he's sort of a – he sees the dangers of, of, of the Kafkaesque uh, in American life. Um, very clearly and lucidly. And that's why he is a staunch individualist. So his view on politicians, you know, he would watch Trump with the same disgust with which he watched Bush the father or Nixon, but in a different form, you know, and he would express it differently. He had sort of diagnosed the illness of the whole system. So the individual, his view on individual politicians tended to be the same. How, you know, how long can you keep your integrity? Probably not very. That was his view. You know what? That that's uh, very poignant. I like. I uh, I enjoy that insight, um, and I'm also going to give you credit for your reference to that quote. You're right. It was John Dahlberg Octon. Lord Acton, yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, which I know, I only know that because of Hunter Thompson, because he he mentions that somewhere. I thought, oh, that's who said that. <laughs> I always thought it was Machiavelli. Thanks for teaching me, schooling me. We're talking to JQ, our resident cultural critic, a writer, a musician, who lives in the south of France, and um, we're we're going to uh, talk a bit more to to Mister JQ. 
about, I guess, the U.S. I, I, I wanted to, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, why, why you you dislike Greta Thun, Thunberg so much. Oh, I didn't say I dislike. That was just one line in an email. <laughs> I didn't say I dislike her. I said I barely know anything about her. I haven't been following, but she annoys me. And now for those uh, people who do not know, she's the young woman from, I believe she's from uh, Norway, right? Or Sweden, Norway, Scandinavia. Yeah. And uh, she's 16. She's in a very, I would say, rabid uh, climate, climate change uh, activist. You know, she, she wants people to understand the, the gravity of the situation. And so she irritates you. She's 16, I think. Yeah, around there, I guess. And, you know, I've listen, I'm going off a few sound bites. OK, uh, but the you know, the huh, how can I say this delicately? You know, you don't know anything. You're a kid and, and you might be right on the issues. You know what? I actually agree f for the most part. Look, I'm somebody who who even you know, I've argued with with so-called climate skeptics or people who thought global warming was some sort of massive hoax, right? Because you run into people like that. And my point was always, okay, let's say you're right. It's still better to get off of fossil fuels and develop alternative technologies. And the reason we don't is because there's too much, you know, vested interest in the oil industry, and they're too powerful. But even for reasons beyond climate change, we should be getting away from fossil fuels for any other, you could list two dozen ecological reasons to do it, right? So I'm for it anyway, if you see what I mean. And even I aesthetically, do. it's just, but you think, right. you think she's and a kid because, because foreign policy, because of the wars happen because of the oil as well. It's so anything that, you know, if we could invest in, into alternative energies and, and getting away from this, this mentality that says we need perpetual growth, which is insane, which is which is a collective insanity. You well, know, she, yeah, she, she also states that in a lot of her speeches, how it's it's crazy to think that we could forever grow. It's unsustainable. But but you, you think she's too young to be making these statements. She doesn't know enough about the complexity of the situation. She's oversimplifying it or she's. No, no, it's not even that. It's just that she came off in the little bit that I saw as being one of those sanctimonious people who thinks they've really got it figured out and can tell people how the world should be run. And that's always problematic for me. I'm sure she's a very nice young lady, <laughs> right? Uh, I, it's, and it's just an impression. It's just an impression and something that I've had too much personal experience with. You know, uh, look, you know, the, 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 the snot-nosed kid who thinks he knows better, the, the, and the issues are very complex, and the world is a very complex and difficult place. I happen to agree with her. And politically, you know, I'm right down the line as being, you know, for alternative energies and, and all the, all of those things. I, you know, I'm for a complete upheaval of our value system. I'm a Nietzschean. I want a revaluation of all values because our values are mistaken. They, they have they, there's a lot of false assumptions that we have about the world. Right. And so it's simply a question of style. That annoyed me. It irritated me. Yes. Gotcha. And I only saw a few clips and I was kind of like, yeah, you really think you're something, you know, to, to, to be telling people off that way. It's like, okay, you know what? 
those of us, you're not going to convince anybody. Those of us who figured out that climate change is extremely important, something needs to be done. We, you know, we figured it out. Like <laughs> the alarm bell has been sung. And here's the other side of that is I also get very cynical when I see somebody who doesn't seem to deserve that much attention being trotted out in the media everywhere. I have enough conspiracy theorists in me, just enough in me to to be wary when all of a sudden there's this hero out of nowhere who is saying things that are as obvious as the nose on your face and that have already been said and everybody is singing her praises. It just seems like some sort of collective mania to me, you know, like this is the flavor of the week kind of thing. So because she's, I, yeah, she's being used for some sort of attention uh, garnering as attention, uh, but maybe that an attention garnering tool, but maybe that's what uh, the climate activists want or need, you know, some, something to compel uh, and motivate yeah, maybe. You know, maybe. I, I all I said was, look, maybe, and and if that works, great. All I'm saying is, personally, yeah, I thought she was a petulant little girl, and and I was not impressed by the anything really. You know, I have friends that have written me like, oh, she's giving me a real kick in the ass, and it's a great thing, and you know, to get my old self wound. I was like, no, I'm already there. I don't need this kid talking down to me. <laughs> I hear you, JQ. I want to ask you about. Um... Michael Draper, remember him? I do. You guys had a radio show together, I think, a long time ago, didn't you? Oh, way back in the day, we worked on some plays together. Uh, yeah, and, and hung around, and, we, and then you know we, 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 we did a lot of bar hopping together. And I think out of respect for for his memory, he passed recently. Uh, in a couple of sentences, describe to the world who Michael Draper was or is. Michael Draper was a, a dangerously inspired person with a big smile and a heart of gold. Yeah, well put, well put. Do you have any uh, anecdotes? Oh, putting me on the spot like that? You know, nothing that I can tell on the air. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> come on, man, you, you, knew, you knew us. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> this, is, this is a family broadcast. <laughs> Well, I think that's an anecdote in a way, in and of itself. Uh, yeah, I wanted to give you an opportunity to say a couple words about Mr. Draper. And um, so we're just about out of time there, here, there. I know you're about, what, did daylight savings time happen there yet? You're five or six hours ahead of us? And oh, uh, it hasn't happened here yet. We don't generally don't do it the same week. I always get confused by that. And then I'm never ready when it gets here. I'm not even sure when it is. I'm always shocked. The time has changed, and I haven't, and I just have to adapt. <laughs> so uh, we're going to hear a song today called Butterflies that in includes your daughter. Uh, why, don't, why don't you give us a little uh, insight on, on uh, the essence of this tune? All the Butterflies is uh, a song. You know, it, it happened because a very good friend of mine named Jenny, who is one of the most empathetic people I've ever known, and that is a dangerous quality, the best quality, but a dangerous one because it makes you fragile in this world. Jenny wrote me a long email where telling the story about her and her boyfriend walking home one day, and there was a wounded butterfly on the sidewalk. And then she proceeded to tell me how, well, Kevin, her boyfriend, immediately swept the butterfly up and we brought it home. And they ended up taking home care of this butterfly with a damaged wing. You know, they saved it so the ants on the sidewalk wouldn't eat it. Uh, they brought it home, took it care of it for weeks, went online, found like support groups to take care of a butterfly, fed it out of a sponge, named it Queen Elizabeth because it was a monarch butterfly. <laughs> 
Right. The, the, and this whole story, and I'm reading it, and not once did Jenny stop to notice how rare and what a crazy thing it is to stop and pick up a butterfly with a damaged wing and take it home and nurse it through the end of its life and then weep when it dies. And I was so moved because that's the type of person Jenny is. It's why she's adored. She's somebody I love a lot, you know. Uh, and I see the same butterfly. I'm a nice guy, but I see the butterfly. I say, huh, tough luck for that butterfly. And I keep walking, yeah. right? Uh, I'm maybe a little sad for the butterfly, but I don't spend weeks of my life nursing the butterfly. So that inspired this song, which is basically, uh, I use the notion of all the butterflies to talk about, you know, the empathetic types, the creative types, the people who don't fit into the system and the mold and have a tougher time of it out there. That's the song. It's called All the Butterflies. Hope you enjoy it. Had a great time. <laughs> JQ, our resident cultural critic, speaking to us from the south of France and his new digs. I'm so happy for you. Hopefully I get to uh, come and visit you there. Either way, thanks for taking the time out and being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, my friend. Thanks, brother. Get in a plane. I'll see you soon. Okay. Ciao. Bye.
An excerpt from an essay titled Portraits and Landscapes by Saul Steinberg, published in the winter 2010 edition of the Paris Review. Giacometti was a dear friend whom I always enjoyed talking to until the end. He remained what I would call adolescent, meaning curious, free. He was also very handsome because he had the face of a poet, which to me looked quite similar to Colette's, like a character. He had an eye that looked stricken at one moment, then happy and animated the next. It was curious. A smile would completely change his face, which was rather melancholy, even tragic at times, with a color that wasn't among the healthiest. That sudden alteration suggested something you see often among children. In the midst of tears, having seen or heard something, they suddenly smile, having completely forgotten they were crying. The smile, with the face still bathed in tears, is one of the most touching things. He lived for many years in a Parisian courtyard, a beautiful French setting for poverty. He was obliged to install a telephone, probably at the insistence of his dealer, and because he was always working on a sculpture and his hands were always smeared with plaster, the telephone itself gradually became a Giacometti sculpture, a sculpture that every now and then you could suddenly hear ringing. What Van Gogh was trying to paint with his Baroque brushstrokes, comma-shaped, S-shaped, spiral-shaped, was a vision of the convolutions of the brain. He was obsessed with it. Due to his insanity, he constantly pondered what was going on in the labyrinths of his own brain, and this obsession led him to represent the world as a cosmic brain, a giant brain. And thus the ear, like a visible nephew or relation of the brain, an outgrowth, an exterior part of the cranium, sharing its convolutions. While he was painting his portraits, and above all his self-portraits, Van Gogh must have seen that the contorted brushstrokes he used for the nose, the mouth, the beard, the clothes, and the background became realistic once he reached the ear. They were no longer a transformation. Even a conventional painter who paints in a photographic manner unwittingly begins to work a little like Van Gogh when he reaches the ear. I was urged to visit Sartre by John Milley, the photographer from Life, and also by my own snobbery. I had met him before. At that time, immediately after the war in 46, it was easy to meet people. If you were staying at the Hotel Pont Royal, you went down to the bar, and there you found the entire French intelligentsia. I did my portrait of Sartre at his home on Rue Bonaparte, where he lived with his mama, a refined woman who stood there watching while I drew. I knew that Sartre was an important man, and especially during that period, one of the most visible in France. But for me, that no longer meant much. Also, I had read a piece of his that didn't seem very intelligent. He said that the Jews had survived only because of the persecution, for which, therefore, they could thank God. I was more drawn to Camus, who was handsome, interesting, intelligent, full of life. 
I made only a single drawing of Satre. He didn't even see it. He was used to having photographs and drawings made of him, and he was eager to be seen. We all were then. The war was over. Peace had returned. We had inherited a vast emptiness that needed to be filled very quickly. We were all much younger, less accustomed to fame. Meeting people who loved you, who complimented you, was an inexhaustible pleasure. flyer. Drank all of the Jameson last night at the bog on Adams Avenue, celebrating one of the exceptional from the folk native to this town. It is profound how one individual can unlock and inspire so much in a community of people. They could not wet enough their whistles 
and song and love and wishes and sadness and hope. Can you taste it? Can you hear it? Can you feel it? It is all and it is you. Have it, episode 341 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our resident cultural critic, J.Q., writer Saul Steinberg, and these musical artists Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, O.K. Patty, featuring the great Brian Craig. The Nude Party, JQ featuring Gia, Meyer Hawthorne, The Band, 
Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Until next time, why don't we go ahead and enjoy this time. Take care.